Good evening. They suggest you get out of your comfort zone, so just I'll just let you know right up front that I am not a farmer. And this setting definitely is not my comfort zone. So it is good to be here. I appreciate this chapel particularly. I was unable to attend because of another ministry commitment, George's funeral, and I just want to tell you uh, the legacy that George left behind and his faithfulness, particularly to the work at the home, is it's hard to talk about it was so faithful. We, we live in a day and age where faithfulness is not a hallmark of us brethren anymore, and George was faithful. And I can't tell you what it meant over the years for the folks at the home for George to be there every Sunday morning at 8.30 to lead a break in the bread, to lead the singing, and to be there, and sometimes the only male, and to carry the whole meeting. And I, I um, admired him for it. I appreciated him for it. And he will be missed a great deal. So I took the liberty to say that. I, I will miss him. And you see the legacy he has left behind, and, and I very much appreciate that. If you turn in your Bibles to Luke 22... We come to one of the awesome scenes in the Bible, a scene that it reminds me of Moses and the burning bush where you feel like you need to take your shoes off because you're standing on holy ground. It reminds me of a time of the tabernacle and the holiest of holies and the curtains drawn back once a year so that the high priest could go in. And as we look at this passage, I would, it, I ask myself, what other things remind me of this passage? And I would suggest that this passage is akin to Abraham and Isaac, and Abraham going up the mountain. And they get to that point, and Abraham says unto the young men who are with them, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And there were only two people who were witness to what took place on that mountain. And yet, as we read this, we're going to see that our God is so gracious that God, if you would, pulls back the curtain and allows us to see into an intimate conversation between the Father and the Son and allows us to see it. What a gracious God we have that he cares enough for us to let us in. And I would compare it to the servants of Abraham who stayed behind. And I want to tell you, as I read the scriptures more and more, it becomes even more impressed that God doesn't treat me like a servant. He treats me like a friend. He doesn't keep me in the dark on his plans. He exposes them and tells me, 
what is up and what's coming. And there are times, and he opens the door, so to speak, and allows me to see conversations that I have no right to see. I have no vested interest in seeing except that God reveals to me that he's my friend and that I'm in a relationship with him. And as we look at this passage, I want us to understand that. And then I'll mention one other time. As I, as I think through the scriptures and I think where else has a conversation between the Father and the Son been revealed to us? And I can only think of one, and there's some Bible scholars out there more intelligent than myself, and they can probably think of some others. But there's one that particularly comes to mind, and that's Psalms 110, where David tells us that the Father welcoming the Son into heaven says, sit thou at my right hand. And David was able to, so to speak, eavesdrop on that conversation and share that with us. And therefore, we're privy to a conversation that took place once again between the Father and the Son. And I just want, as we read this, to just think about that. This, it's magnificent that God would allow us to hear this and to see this. Let's start with the 39th verse, if you would. And he came out and went, it's Luke 23 and verse 39, and he came out and went as it want to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven and strengthened him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples. He found them sleeping for sorrow and said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. And while yet he spake, behold, a multitude, he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? When they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? One of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and healed them. Then said Jesus unto the chief priests and the captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him, Be ye come out as against the thief with swords and staves. When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hand against me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. And the Lord will add a blessing to the reading of his word. One of the things as we read through Luke particularly, and he presents the story of, of the Lord Jesus and exactly what happens with, with some details that others leave out and sometimes leaves out details that other includes. One of the things that Luke makes clear is that when they went to the upper room, it was in secret. 
It was in secret. There was something that the Lord had to do in the upper room. And so Judas was there, but it wasn't Judas who went in. And how did they find the upper room? To go and find a man who, and tell him you have need of a room and he'd lead you. Why? Why, why was it important for that room to be a secret location? Because they didn't want Judas to, to go and tell and have him taken during the time he's in the upper room. Judas is conspiring at this point for the Lord to be taken. But the Lord had things to accomplish in the upper room. And he wanted to introduce a new covenant. And he wanted to break bread with his disciples. And he wanted to pass the wine. And he wanted to tell them what it meant. And if we turn to John, we'll see he wanted to give them their final instructions. But now the hour's come. Now the time is on hand. The crucial hour and the crucial event is about ready to happen. And so what does it tell us? And he came out and went as it want to the Mount of Olives. He went to where he regularly went and prayed exactly where Judas would know how to find him. He didn't go and hide. He didn't run. He full well knew what was happening. If we turn over to John, it says, I have power to take my life and I have power to lay it down. He's not a victim here. Often when you hear people talk about this passage, they talk almost as if he's a victim. He is not a victim and he's not portraying himself as a victim. He's fully aware. He goes to where he knows he's going to be captured. He goes to a place where Judas would know was his familiar praying ground. And of course, as we're going to see, Judas leads him right to that place. Verse 40, and when he was at the place, he said unto pray that you may enter not, enter not into temptation. There's a battle going on. And he leads his disciples to fight that battle through prayer. Prayer can be difficult. Prayer can be challenging. And in the midst of a battle, it can be the most difficult time to pray. But you know what? I think he's making it very clear here. It's the most important time to pray. It's the most important time to pray. And he tells them to pray that they enter not in temptation. It's when the trial comes that the tempter will most tempt you. When you turn to the weapons in Ephesians, one of their weapons is prayer. Most people don't get down there that prayer is a weapon, but it's the last weapon, and it's an important weapon. It's the only one of the few offensive weapons you have. You know, if you're struggling with someone, and your personalities are clashing, and they seem to be full of pride, and they just seem to be just, uh, pray for them. Pray for them. It's amazing when you start praying for someone how your attitude towards them can change. Pray for him. And then he withdraws. And he kneels down. And he prays. There's a battle going on. It's a battle that he must win. That he cannot fail. Because everlasting victory is in sight. He prays. He prays. 
And this is what he prays. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He always did the will of the Father. There was never a question that he would do the will of the Father. He's praying, not my will, but thine. But what does he pray? He says, if this cup can pass from me. Why would he pray that? Is there any other way? Is there any other way? Stop, if you would. It's, it's, I have to be honest, it's very difficult to place myself and try to put my thoughts on what's going on in the dark. One of the issues here is to be real honest with you is people speculate about this passage a lot. I would, I would caution you, I would warn you about speculating. Paul says, great is the mystery of godliness. Christ was manifest in the flesh. It is beyond my finite mind to understand the workings of the Lord Jesus. Matthew 11 clearly tells us that it's the Father only who understands the Son. When we try to understand the Son, when we try to explain the workings of the mind of the Son, we're going to fail every time. When we start walking on thin ice and we're going to fall through every time. And many times, that's where heresy comes in when we try to explain something that God has not told us and God has not explained to us. And we need to be extremely careful. God's told us what he wants us to know, and he hasn't told us more. And I don't know if it's pride. I don't know if it's human intuition. I don't know what it is, but humans often want more. I was challenging a man about the mind of Christ, and he told me he thought Christ was a schizophrenic, that sometimes he did things as man and sometimes he did things as God. And I told him that's heresy. You will not find that in the scriptures. There's never that type of explanation. And you need to be really careful when you start saying things like that. Because it's not scriptural, and I believe it's very bad doctrine, and personally I believe it's heresy. We're not told what it is. What we are told is that we have the one who knew no sin. We're told at least three times he knew no sin, there was no sin found in him. He said in the upper room, Satan, the God of this world, Satan has nothing, the prince of this earth has nothing to find in me. We have a holy, totally holy mind contemplating becoming sin. Sometimes we sing that song, help me to understand it, help me to take it in, what it meant for thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. This is where that battle is taking place. Is there another way? Is there another way? In Isaiah 55, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For the heavens are higher than the earth, and so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And the answer was, there is no other way. We live in a day and age where there's many people who believe there's another way. And those who believe there's some other way to heaven except through the death of Jesus Christ totally miss what's happening here in the garden. Because if there was any other way, the answer would have been there's another way. 
There's another way. There was no other way. There was only one way, and that was the Holy One who knew no sin to become sin for us. Stop and think about that. That I can't grasp. I don't understand it. I don't understand the agony of a holy one who knew nothing about sin was going through as he faced becoming sin. I mean, if you turn to Psalms 22, we know that sin is such anathema to God that he turned his back on his son while he was on the cross. Because God's holy. And so here's the holy one who's contemplating becoming sin. But I'm thankful. And I'm thankful that he was obedient. Romans 19, 5 and 19 tells us, By one's man disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. He was obedient. His primary goal was to glorify the Father. And so he says, not my will, but thine. There is no other way. I don't think there was any pretense in the prayer. I think it was an honest prayer. The Lord was fully aware of what lay behind, before him. He was fully aware of what would take place when he drank that cup. There was no cheap enthusiasm. There was no failure to count the cost. There was nothing superficial. Nothing like Peter professing readiness to suffer and then failing. None of that because he fully understood the battle that was to be fought. And I believe he sincerely prayed that the cup would pass from him. That no matter how the agony, no matter how the cost, no matter what the prospect, he prayed, not my will, but thine. To be honest, I don't know how many of us could have prayed that. I know I would have struggled. To be honest, I get anxious when I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. Here, he full well knows the cost. The ultimate cost, the Holy One becoming sin, and he willingly, be, obediently goes forth. Let's look at verse 43. And being in agony, oh, for, 43, sorry. And there appeared an angel unto him in heaven, strengthening him. Angelic ministry is never, is, is normally physical, not spiritual, I believe. In this case, it was physical again. The angels came and ministered unto him. Now notice they minister unto him in the garden. There is no angelic ministry when he's on the cross. They ministered to him at the end of the 40 days in the wilderness. They come and minister again to him. Verse 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. 
There's been some controversy over this verse for a while. My dad was um, want to believe that it was not real blood, that it was as it were blood. If you told him it was blood, he usually excommunicated you or had nothing to do with you. I would not go that far. I don't know. Luke's a physician and he's describing a physical act. I know some people have explained that it's possible to sweat as it were drops of blood when you're under intense pressure. I'm not a doctor. But I think Luke as a doctor is trying to communicate to us the agony that the Lord Jesus was in. An agony we can't begin to enter into. And so he's describing a physical scene so we can somehow have some small grasp of what's taking place. But later in this very book, when it comes to the crucifixion, and you would think that Luke being a physician and a doctor would be able to describe the physical attributes of crucifixion. And Luke says, they crucified him. That's it. They crucified him. He goes into some explanation of what's happening physically here. He gets to the cross and he simply says, they crucified him. Nothing about the nails. They crucified him. But here, Luke, to try to help you understand what the Lord Jesus was going through here in the garden, tells you that he was in agony and he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was it was great drops of blood. And when he rose up from prayer in verse 45, was come to the disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. Not from exhaustion, but from sorrow. That's an interesting statement. I've thought about it. I have no explanation. I could speculate. I don't know when the disciples finally realized what was happening. In the upper room, they were still arguing who was going to be first in the kingdom. He'd introduced the last covenant, the new covenant, and said that this is my body and this is my blood. Maybe they got it a little bit. But they're not sleeping from exhaustion. They're sleeping from sorrow. And yet, there was no sorrow like unto his sorrow. In verse 46, and they send him, why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. It was not a time for sleeping. There was pearl at hand. And so he exhorts them to pray and preserve. There's a trial coming. Be ready. Be alert. He tells us the same thing. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Do I realize the danger that's at hand? We're living in a time and, 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 and events of the, of, of the last couple of days just 
magnify that we're living in a time of peril. We don't know what's going to happen. We're living in a dangerous time. We need to watch and pray. We need to watch and pray. We can be overwhelmed with sorrow and stop. We can be overwhelmed with the events of the day and just... So what always happens, if you look at circumstances, circumstances will always overwhelm you. One of the things about prayer, though, is hopefully you take your eyes off circumstances and place them on the Lord. And you get in communion with the Lord, and the, and the circumstances can grow strangely dim as you consider who you're speaking to. Verse 47, while he yet spake. Luke wants us to know that he's barely telling them to watch and pray when the very next event comes up to him and happens while he's speaking. And what's that event? It says, and while he spake, behold a multitude. That's a pretty large number. They didn't send four or five. Here's this man who was always peaceful, who never raised his hand against anyone, never lost his temper. Wish I could say that. Never lost his temper. And they come at him with force. And who's leading them? And he, that was called Judas. One of the twelve went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss. Luke wants us to know that Judas was one of the disciples. He was one of the in people. He was one of them. And he's leading them right to where he knew Jesus was to capture them. Notice it says, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss. Luke doesn't tell him he actually kissed him. Luke tells us that he drew near. Now the Lord knew full well what he was there for. And so in verse 48, he says, But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Most of you probably realize this, but I know Trevor has been practicing to greet each other with holy kisses, and he won't let me go without kissing me on a regular basis. But his kiss is one of friendship, and that's usually what a kiss is. If you're, if you're going to throw your arms around someone and kiss them on the cheek, it's a sign of affection. And here comes Judas to throw his arms around Jesus and kiss him on the kick, cheek as a sign of betrayal. And so the Lord gently tells him, Judas, betrayest thou? Me with a kiss. You can't just point me out. The treachery, the evil heart, is just exposed as he comes to betray him with a kiss. Verse 49, when they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? Earlier, the Lord had mentioned to them about buying swords, and they had two. I think they missed his point. He wasn't about buying swords. But they had two swords. And so now they say, okay, and it's now the time. Should we use the swords now? 
And we know that Peter's impetuous. I know there's none of us here that are impetuous, but Peter was. So Peter, he's ready to leap. He's ready to act. But I think part of it was response to Judas's treachery. Betrayal is something that pierces like nothing else. If you think there's someone who's trusted, and at this point, I'm not sure the disciples understood that Judas was going to betray him. I don't know that they knew Judas's role. I think he had left the supper, but they said he assumed to go buy something or go do something, that he was sent on an errand. And so here he comes up, and the Lord identifies him and says, are you going to betray me with the kiss? And then it's like, whoa. This inner circle person is the one who's led this multitude up here with swords and staves to take the Lord? I think the reaction of Peter was natural. I think if we think about being betrayed, I think we'd see it. He's unprepared by prayer. He's ungoverned by the will and wisdom of God. And his reaction is utterly inappropriate. Verse 50, and one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Luke doesn't tell us it's Peter, but we know it's Peter. Have you been betrayed and wanted to lash out? Never happened to me. That would be a lie, by the way. But Peter, Peter relaxed naturally. But they weren't up against flesh and blood. It wasn't the swords and the staves that they were up against. And actually, Peter was playing into their hands. Because nothing would have been better than to go to the Roman government and tell them that there was an armed rebellion. Nothing would have played into their hands than to be able to accuse Christ of leading an armed rebellion. And yet that does not happen. This was not a time or a place that physical weapons was going to bring about deliverance. Zechariah 4, 6, then he answered and spake unto me, saying, this is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, not by might, not by power, not by, but by my spirit, the Lord of hosts. There was a great victory going to be won, but it wasn't through swords. And in fact, swords would bring about exactly the opposite of what was necessary and needed to take place. Verse 51, and Jesus answered, suffer ye thus far, and he touched his ear and healed him. I wish that when I've injured people that the Lord was there to heal them. Because I've injured more than my fair share over the years. And I'm afraid that I've cut off more than ears. And I've discouraged people and caused issues and it's because I went in unprepared. And I hadn't prayed. And I hadn't taken the other person into consideration. And I had reacted 
and reacted in a wrong way. In this case, the Lord heals. It's important that the Lord heals because therefore the charge that he led an armed rebellion or that people were injured and taken of him could absolutely be dismissed and would be a false charge. And we see that. Verse 52, and then Jesus said unto the chief priests and the captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him, but ye come out against a thief with swords and staves. Why do you come after me with power and might? I've never resisted. I'm not resisting now. Do you think I'm an armed insurrectionist? You think I'm leading a rebellion? Why would you do this? And then he asked him the question, why well, was daily with you in the temple? You stretch forth no hand against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. It was all a pretense. They could have taken him at any time while he was in the temple. He was there for three days straight teaching. If you remember, he, they came with him with questions and he left them speechless. There's a question, should you pay taxes? Later on, we're going to read, they accused him of saying that they shouldn't pay taxes. He never said that. There would have been multitude of witnesses saying, no, that's not what he said, because he said what? Go find a coin and show me his images on it. And he said, render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And then they asked him about the resurrection, and he corrected them on that. And then they asked him about the law, and he corrected them on that. And then he had a question for him. And he turns the Psalms 110, and he says, Who's David's talking about? Who's David's son and yet David's Lord? Because the first question is, whose son is the Messiah? David. Then how is this Messiah both David's son and David's Lord? And it left them speechless and embarrassed them in front of the multitude of people surrounding. And they realized they had no answers for this man. This man overwhelmed them. And they were embarrassed. But they didn't take him then. No, they acted by night. And they acted with superfluous. I can't say that word, so I won't even try. They acted with deceit. And they come to him with swords and with staves to take him. This man who full well knew the course before him. If you turn to John, it says that he said, who do you want me? Leave these others go. Because he still had his mind on letting his disciples not suffer with him. It was a road that he had to take by himself. He was the only one. He was the only one without sin that could be a sinless substitute on our behalf. And they come out with swords and saves, not in broad daylight. There's no basis for taking them. If you go on to the next chapter, it talks about his trial. They broke almost every rule they had. These were religious people. These were people who said they were just people. These were people who said that we serve the living God and our goal is to glorify and honor him. 
and yet they were full of deceit. And even when Pilate finds him not guilty and wants to release him, they say, away with him. We will not have this man to rule over us. Crucify him, crucify him. And even when Pilate wanted to be just, they wanted no justice. They had an enemy, and they wanted that enemy to be extinguished. And I believe they're acting on behalf of the God of this world. There were powers at play here well beyond them. When we turn over to Revelation, we look at Revelation, there's going to be powers to play. And this world is going to be under the power that's not of God. And there will be a great battle, but there's coming a time when the Lord's going to show his power. There was a power here in his not resisting arrest. But there's coming a day when this power will be on display. And, and Revelation tells us there will be rejoicing in heaven when his power is displayed. Think about that. They've been patiently waiting for him to redeem the earth and to come back and take over the earth. And there's coming a time when that power is going to be displayed and there will be rejoicing in heaven. This was not the time. John tells us, he said, I am, and they all fell back. This was not the time. There was a different power at work here. And I want to tell you, it's a power I don't know a lot about. It's a power in humility. It's a power in willingness to say, not my will, but thine be done. It's a power in accepting something which is, a, is, is anathema to the mind. I'm not sure I'm ready for that. But I have an example of what it looks like. I have an example of what it looks like when you're betrayed and you react with kindness. I have an example of what it looks like when you appear to be powerless over circumstances. And I don't believe the Lord is powerless over circumstances for one minute, but I know what it appears like. There are times in my life I'm powerless over circumstances, and it's difficult for me to be patient and to wait on the Lord. The Lord Jesus, though, sets the example. He sets the bar very high. He sets the bar very high. The forces of evil were mustered against him. And he knew it. And he submitted because it was the will of God. It was, I believe, the battle of the ages. We look forward to, cru the, the, the whole world look forward to the cross. And we look back to the cross. It is the battle of the ages. And it was won, not by might and not by power. And he met Satan and he won a great victory over sin and death and hell. When the Lord comes, when Nicodemus comes to the Lord and he comes to the Lord and he says that he must be born again. But later on he tells him this. He says that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 
so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And when you think about that, there is no wonder that the crucified Messiah is a stumbling block to the Jews. And really, that's what the Lord's telling Nicodemus. He's going to be lifted up on a cross. If you think back to Numbers and you think about that experience in the desert, I don't like snakes. I don't know too many people who really like them. But people are being bit by viper snakes and they're dying right and left. And the word comes to put a brass serpent on a pole and put it in the middle and they're told to look there for healing. Stop and think a moment. How difficult would it be to be able to look at the very object that you're dreading and that you hate and you're trying to avoid? Really look at something that's a curse to live. And yet that's the very thing that he instructs Nicodemus, that it's at the cross that Christ who was going to become a curse was they had to look on that thing they dreaded most, death, to be healed. That it was through death that the victory was won. And the Jews to this day can't look at that and understand. They think death is weakness. We know that he willingly submits because it was God's plan. Because through death, the victory is won. It's not the way we think. It's not what man would have planned. But we know it was the only way that victory could be gained. Hebrews 2 and 14 says this, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. We have to look at the dying Savior and realize that he died And that's what's going to release us from our fear of death. He won the victory over death that day by taking on human flesh and dying there on the cross. Just like Nicodemus, he told Nicodemus he had to look at the Lord Jesus on the cross. Just like the serpent in the wilderness, we must look to the cross and see a dying Savior. Later in Luke, we're going to see the one of the thieves turns and looks at a dying Savior and professes for him to remember when he, when he sees him in paradise. What an amazing act of faith that the person dying on the cross next to you seems to be a helpless victim, and yet you believe. You believe. And that's what we need to do is we need to look at the Savior on the cross and realize what a great victory was won through his death. There at Calvary, let's pray. Father, we come this morning, this evening. We thank you for your word. Oh, Father, we, we would readily admit that our finite minds just struggle to grasp some of these things. And yet, Father, we, we thank you that you're such a gracious God. That you would give us details. That you'd let us see behind the curtain, so to speak. To see how things work. We thank you that you treat us as friends. 
and not like servants. That you reveal your will to us. That you enlighten us. And yet, Father, we must admit that we're dull at times and we're slow to learn. We fail to grasp the obvious. We struggle with the simple. So, Father, we would be reminded that you said, he that hath an ear, let him hear. Father, help us to be those who hear. Help us to be those who understand. As we sang in the hymn earlier, help us to be enlightened so that we might grasp what it is you have for us. Oh, Father, we're so thankful that it was not our plan. It was not man's plan. It was not man's way. But, Father, we're thankful there was only one way to save us, and that was through the death of your son at Calvary. So thankful he said, here am I, send me. We thank you, Father, that he was willing. And yet, Father, we're reminded again of the great anguish he had in the garden as he contemplated becoming sin for us. Oh, Father, truly help us to have the same outlook on sin. Help us to understand sin in the way he understands sin. Help us not to be casual about sin. Help us to understand the great cost that was paid for our salvation there at Calvary. Oh, Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that instructs us. May we be ready learners. Oh, Father, we give you thanks in the name of your son. We pray for the upcoming DVBS. Oh, Father, that at a young age, before they're scarred by sin, may these children come to know the Savior. Father, may you have your protective and loving care over this event this week. May the gospel go out with power. May the Lord Jesus Christ be preached. May his loveliness turn a young heart to salvation. And then, Father, Friday, when they gather for the parents to come, may the gospel be preached in such a way that these parents will understand there's only one way. And there's a reason there's only one way to be received of Christ, and that's through him to the Father. Father, we would ask, Father, that you would work in a mighty way this next week. We give you thanks in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.